Welcome again to Fantastical Truth. I am E. Stephen Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven. And as we record this, it's getting a little uncertain out there in the wide world, folks. Uh, Jesus has not yet returned, so we can't make any promises that only Jesus can keep. Uh, But right now, we invite you to stop by our virtual living room here on Fantastical Truth. There is a wood fire on, we have burning candles, we have comfy chairs, we have plenty of bottled water, we have a generator, and of course, there's a fully stocked pantry of toilet paper and hand sanitizer and all the rest of it. And this is episode eight, How Does Pandemic Fiction Help Us Seek God's Strength in Scary Times? And I'm Zachary Russell, but here at my FEMA camp, I go by Zach. We are here in a small room that is, as far as we know, completely virus-free. And of course, uh, virus is all the talk of all the town, all the news, all of the comment sections, all the Twitters, all the social media universe. We're actually going to talk a little bit about that this time, which will come as a surprise to those of you who follow the podcast, because in our last episode, we said that we would talk about Frankie Peretti's classic supernatural spiritual warfare thriller, This Present Darkness. We're still going to do that. We have not forgotten that. It's too good a topic to pass up. We're going to do that in our next episode, we promise. But every time we pitch that next episode, there's a little bit of a, a, a hidden a disclaimer in there. It's like, that's our topic that we've planned unless something big comes up. This is something big that came up. Zach, it's pandemic time. That's the word everyone's using. That's not hyperbole. Everyone's talking about it, and they all have their different angles, mostly the political angles and, of course, toilet paper joke yeah. angles. Lots of memes. Uh, we may actually have a few memes to share. I have a few favorites that I've tried to start and plenty that I've shared. Our angle, of course... Life is too short to not meme the apocalypse. Well, one of the memes I saw said, hey, we've always kind of subconsciously wondered if we had an apocalypse, are people just going to live tweet it? The answer is yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, That's the one thing that our end times fiction has not yet captured is the fact that there would be hashtags for the Mark of the Beast, uh, if that indeed is what uh, Christians can expect in the end times. Uh, everybody's got an angle on this one. Uh, our angle on Fantastical Truth is everything we talk about somehow relates to that mission to find truth in fantastic stories and apply this truth to the real world that Jesus Christ calls us to serve. So we're going to talk about not just pandemic stories, but just the very theme, the very big idea that when Christians, in obedience to Jesus, while we're trying to be like Jesus, pursue and enjoy stories that are about hard issues like suffering and death and specifically pandemics and sometimes the darker matters of life, those stories can actually be used, we think, in our spiritual walk to help us prepare emotionally for just the sorts of situations that we and our neighbors find ourselves in right now. Yeah, speaking of prepare, if you're a prepper, I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, Y2K preppers, this is your moment. Yeah. 20 years, (laughs) three and a half months later. So today we're going to talk about a few movies that deal with pandemics, but we're also going to focus on Tosca Lee's book, The Line Between, and there's a follow-up novel called A Single Light. And Stephen, is she working on a third? Is is this part of a trilogy? No, I believe it's just two books. It's just a duology. That's it. Yes. Now we we actually profiled The Line Between uh, in uh, the, the, it was the spring 2019 issue of Lorehaven. Uh, that, uh, that was our featured book uh, for that issue. You can yeah. get those uh, free issues uh, by subscribing uh, for free to the email uh, list at lorehaven.com. Uh, frightening stories uh, like that one helps us subconsciously prepare for the worst. It also helped, uh, at least I remember, I mean, Zach, you remember September 11th. Like Some of our oh, yeah. listeners may not remember September 11th, 
But at least emotionally, I felt maybe better prepared for September 11th just because I'd been reading, well, a lot of end times fiction at the time, specifically the Left Behind series. So, oh, yeah, we'll talk about that. Yeah, later. we will. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's um, it was, it was an interesting feeling. Like I wasn't thinking, like, oh, this is the end times, but maybe I was subconsciously prepared. Yeah, well, this is going to be a really good discussion about how do disasters affect us emotionally and how do disaster fiction or pan, especially specifically pandemic fiction, how do those affect our emotions, our walk with God and what we do? But, you know, Stephen, I was thinking about the main thing that disasters seem to do is it's just the classic fight, flight or freeze. You know, we either uh, panic and we we fight our way through Costco to the toilet paper aisle, or we sort of just give up and say, eh, we're all just going to die now of Corona. But but in either case, it's really the same thing. It's it's just this like hyper independence, you know. But as Christians, we're called to dependence on God and interdependence with His people. I, I won't get on my preacher box quite just yet, but that was kind of my my big idea. I came at this with. But first, you know, before we jump into Tosca's book and some other stories, Stephen, did you see this article on Spec Faith I sent you from almost, well, it was about two and a half years ago. Oh, but, the one, yeah, September 2017. You actually brought that up. I, I yeah. had, uh, had not seen that one. We actually need to be sharing mm-hmm. that one. Uh, Speculative Faith, by the way, is the blog from which the Lorehaven Project is sprang, still going as part of that uh, ecosystem of uh, portals at lorehaven.com. So this article is called Down With Sickness, and it's by Mark Carver. And yeah, he wrote this uh, well before coronavirus was on anyone's mind. He was writing about the TV adaptation of The Strain, uh, and that's a vampire show. Uh, we won't get into that as much, but the different thing about that show is that it's the vampires, whatever, spread by a virus. So Mark said, it's, quote, it's interesting how the biggest threat to human existence rarely gets news coverage. It's not North Korea or global warming or white privilege. It's disease, end quote. And Mark talks about how the Spanish flu, SARS, Ebola, uh, those kind of, quote, epidemics remind us that the threat is always at the gate. And with more than 7 billion people on the planet, the opportunity for rogue viruses to find abundant hosts increases every day. You know, Stephen, right away, that makes me think, do you think that pandemic fiction or just the fear of, I should just say that just the fear of pandemics, do you think that's really a fear of like overpopulation? Because it's all about, you know, person to person spreading. Because if we all lived in like little huts or, you know, on big Texas ranches, I don't think we'd be worried about pandemics. Right. Well, if we all had uh, the idyllic past, we all had self-contained systems, everybody had a homestead. A chicken in every pot, uh, everyone has a garden and doesn't need electricity. Or, you know, maybe the modern adaptation of that, everybody has a generator or solar panels and we're all off the grid. And My theory about uh, the least the, the, the common perception of overpopulation is it seems to be shared by those who do live in densely populated areas hmm. where their day-to-day experience is people, people everywhere. Even those who live in the suburbs or in you know, medium to small t- size communities seem not to buy into the overpopulation idea as much because it's, it's not something that explains their daily reality. Yeah, so, so it's more of like an, an urban exactly. story. They're not in you know, a high rise you know, with uh, several different people on, mm-hmm. you know, in their different rooms and you know, on the same floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet you notice that at least as we record this, most of the virus cases that have been reported are in those large metropolitan areas on the east or west coast. Right. 
That's it's coming. I mean, it's going everywhere. Uh, at, at some point, everybody's probably going to be exposed. <laughs> yeah, that's a comforting thought. But it does start with the large cities, and there is a cultural divide uh, between those metropolitan cities where everybody's kind of crammed in together, and more spread out areas like uh, like suburbia or or rural areas. Speaking, of course, from our limited experience, admittedly, uh, living in the United States. And by the way. You know, Stephen, I've been looking at the statistics for this podcast to take a tiny rabbit trail. I've noticed that there are people in uh, London that are listening, people in Australia that are listening, and people in the UAE. That's the United Arab Emirates. Yeah. So if you're a listener, just in particular, those three areas, I would really be interested to know how the coronavirus is affecting you. And also just just to say hi to us, I would love to say hi to you personally. So email us. And uh, podcast at lorehaven.com. But um, anyway, I'll skip through the rest of Mark's article. This will be in the show notes. You know, Mark really makes this point that a plague is, is something that we always think we could, we, we're done with, but it's really God holding that back. But then we see in Revelation that the plague's really going to hit. And of course, there's been a lot of comparisons now to the book of Revelation. And, you know, we, we had this conversation separately, but did Left Behind cover plagues? Barely. Uh, like pestilence, well, I mean? You mean viral outbreaks? Yeah. It was one of the few things that happened in the the um, the margins of this uh, End Times thriller series, mm. mostly popular in the 90s by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins, uh, the late Tim LaHaye, I should say. Uh, lots of things in the Left Behind series, just partly because of the uh, the genre choices, the writing style choices that they made, and partly just because the, the tribulation, if you view it literally, is such a big thing to get through, even if you have 12 books to cover it. The viral outbreaks, which horse of the apocalypse is that? I forget. It may be the pale horse of death. Uh, that, no, the, uh, that the black horse. To that. The, the black horse. Or am I just thinking the black plague? Uh, I don't know. The, the red them, horse is war. That's right. There you go. The white horse is either the conquering Antichrist, or even some people it's believe Nikolai. that it's actually you know, yeah. Jesus. Uh, like on the, that's one interpretation anyway. Uh, but then, yeah, there's a pale horse and a black horse of death. The pale horse might be famine, wants, plague. Okay, as, so it all kind of goes right. together. Yes. Uh, especially if we get this wrong from memory, uh, we will have that in the show notes as well. Either way, in the fiction, you had a greater chance of being poisoned by the Antichrist personally than of <laughs> right. catching the common cold. He seemed, uh, he likes that. Things like uh, diseases and even the seasons of the year were not necessarily a high priority uh, given, the, given the creative choices that they made in that series. So as we talk about some movies and books here, Stephen, the three things that I wanted to explore was what, what is the message of these stories and where's the hope or is there hope? And then kind of what's the call to action? You know, you had brought up Rise of the Dawn of the Planet. I, so I always make fun of the title because I just can't Rise remember of it. The, yeah, they, uh, they seem to come out of order. Yes, I believe the first one is Rise. Rise. Rise of the Planet okay. of the Apes. Yes, I actually have the, uh, the whole series now, that, that trilogy on on blu-ray disc now so i I should know this especially because i just watched that first film uh for the second time but i believe the first one is rise of the planet of the apes and And then it's and then it's dawn of the planet of the apes and then it's war for the war for the planet of the apes which has nothing to do with the older movies which i've not seen uh, and yet i know of course at least the first one is a classic with charlton heston literally pounding sand in the statue of liberty and all so what is interesting to you about this movie in terms of a pandemic story uh the themes of humanity Caesar, the uh, the chimpanzee who gets uh, turned super intelligent by an experimental drug developed in part by a scientist played by James Franco. Uh, Caesar is uh, the hero of the trilogy. 
uh, he, as he becomes more human, you watch him. You don't just get told, but you watch him start to make these more human choices. Like even, uh, even him struggling with morality and how does one super intelligent chimpanzee become becoming more human? Like how does he deal with being locked up, you know, being treated like an animal, even though he's becoming more human? What sort of choices does he make in order to win other apes to his side? And then especially in the second and third films, it, it, there's, a, there's a corresponding epidemic that is unleashed in the world when this drug, which is literally a virus, begins to affect humans, and it actually just gives them terrible, terrible disease. And you get full apocalyptic conditions you know, where society is breaking down and the electrical grid is breaking down and you have struggling enclaves of humans trying to get by and fighting with each other and the military's out there too. And all along, these colonies of apes are just trying to live a more normal, although definitely wilder existence in the forest. They're starting families and they have their complex social structure. They're learning English words. And then in the second film, especially, you have like a, a rival leader to the apes who is evil. I mean, he's just 100% a manipulator. He's a sociopath. And the theme of that, that story is what, what do people do to try to come together, overcome their differences, and, and live in harmony with each other despite the threat of this disease and the threat of evil that threatens even more to take over as, as a contagion. And then in the third film of that series, uh, War, War for the Planet of the Apes, uh, that, that is also a, a great story about that age-old struggle of vengeance and anger you know, when you've been wronged and just that disease that really is treated like a disease of sin mm. that affects, affects these different, uh, different cultures, apes, apes and humans. It's a talking animal story for grown-ups. It really, it really <laughs> is. Yeah, it's like uh, the Jungle Book except with AK-47s and whatever. Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, you, know, you got a chimpanzee on horseback shooting a machine gun. That, I mean, that was pretty awesome. Like when I saw that really in the trailer, is. I'm like, I'm seeing this yeah. movie. What's the best kind of story <laughs> where you've got that popular level appeal? You just kind of sit back yeah. and think nothing except that is so ridiculous that it's awesome. It's kind and of then, like those overdone uh, political shirts I've seen, like with Ronald Reagan on a Velociraptor shooting oh, absolutely. rocket launcher. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, so, so um, the simian flu was sort of an accident, right? Because it was caused when you see, so it goes back to, it's been a while since I've seen this movie. So it goes back to Caesar being injected with this drug that they're using to cure Alzheimer's. And they're trying to, yes. Yeah. <clears throat> and then it, um, and by the way, listener, I'm, I'm, don't worry about my health. I'm clearing my throat because it's allergy season now. Either that or we'll be dead by the next podcast. We just wrapped him up in toilet paper and right. wheel him out of the studio <laughs> on a cart. So the simian flu is an accident brought about by um, this experimentation on Caesar. And other apes, yes. Yeah. Well, it's also a result of neglect and profiteering by the, by the genetics, genetics research company. So it's kind of a, you know, a very strong cautionary tale of you know, man was not meant to meddle, uh -huh. as well as you know, some exploration of the possible... Uh, corruption of the the profit motive and the medical establishment so that that gets us to the message of that film you know every film has a moral the story whatever every story has a moral would you say the message in the new apes movies is that science is bad i would not say that no it's okay. it's more about 
humanity. I mean, it's exploring human nature through the venue of talking animals, but actual humans as well. Mm. I mean, you actually had to think a moment and, and realize, okay, that first film especially, like it, it really did have a very subtle, man was not meant to meddle, don't play God message, but it's not so much about that. You can't really go back over that story, at least I've tried, and try to find the holes. You know, those moments where you're, you're, you're reading or watching a story and go, well, if only they had X, Y, Z, then this, this all could have been avoided. Like, I think they close all those loops, you know, to the point where even the bad guys are fairly sympathetic and where you're watching Caesar make his choices, you know, and you're not, you're never led to be angry at James Franco's character who adopts him and and raises him and then is also forced to abandon him uh, to like an ape refuge, which is basically prison for a super intelligent ape. (laughs) Everybody is treated fairly sympathetically. I, I think that's what I liked about the movie so much. Because I, I remember, li- I remember being really surprised at how much I engaged with it. Because I'm like, I've already seen the Mark Wahlberg and the Charlton Heston playing of the Apes. Well, that like, was how's Mark this Wahlberg was the Tim Burton attempted remake in the early 2000s, yeah, right? I really yeah, wanted to like very that well. One, by the mm-hmm. way, it just just wasn't happening. No, they they took these seriously, and yet also would put an ape on a horse, right, firing a machine gun into the air. When we uh, were pregnant with our son, uh, my wife really liked the name Simeon because of, I want to get this wrong, Luke 4, uh, Simeon that meets baby Jesus at the temple. I hadn't even thought of that rhyming. And I, I was like, <laughs> I had just seen this movie and I'm like, we cannot name our son after the Simeon flu. Well, then what <laughs> happens when he gets the flu? Then he does have the Simeon flu. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, next, so now let's get into our, our main topic, which is Tosca Lee's book, The Line Between. And why don't you give our listener uh, a quick overview of this book? You said this was one of our cover issues for Lorehaven. It was, yes. Uh, this is about a, a young woman who is part of a small uh, single mom family uh, who joins a cult. And as the book opens, she is thrown out of the cult. You don't know why. Flashbacks explain why. As she is sent out into the world, uh, very much a novice as to the, the ways of the world because she spent so many years in this. Uh, I mean, it's basically a doomsday prepper cult uh, started by an eccentric millionaire. Uh, and it turns out that the plague now that is sweeping over the world, uh, not a simian flu, not a coronavirus, but uh, actually a, a dormant virus uh, that had been locked away in permafrost in the Arctic uh, for a long time, now is thawed out and uh, humans are not resistant to it because it had been uh, away from humans for so many lo- so, so many years. Uh, anyway, the, the story is about Winter's journey to discover the source of this plague uh, and also uh, her, her attempts to get over the brainwashing of the cults, which, of course, being a doomsday cult, is suddenly seeing all these doomsday predictions come true, even though they didn't specifically predict the virus, as far as I can remember. Basically turns into a road trip, uh, road trip story uh, and Tale of Survival, lots of wintry conditions, as her name is definitely has a double meaning there, and then it is continued in that uh, in that second book. I really enjoyed this book. I like that it was a journey of faith as well as a physical journey and a, you know, obviously this biological doomsday journey. Like you said, it starts off with her getting kicked out of this cult, and the cult had warned about all this stuff happening. So then the whole book, she's wondering, well, was the cult right? Was I wrong to want to leave this cult? And uh, that is such a fascinating story. But at the same time, she's finding her own way to God. There's a passage I highlighted at the beginning of this book. It's where um, 
it's someone close to her that gets sick and dies. And someone says to Winter, the main character, Winter, listen to me. People get sick, period. It just happens. It's germs, not the devil or stress. God only knows how much of that she's endured in her life. End quote. You know, I feel like that's the main struggle of winter in this book of like, well, where does all this come from? Why is this happening? I mean, that's always the question we ask. Why is this happening? And, you know, we've talked about the, the simian flu being sort of this accident. The line between it's, it's a little more nefarious than that. For me, it's like the me- that's what the message always comes down to is why is this happening? And I, I've seen so much chatter about coronavirus of people saying, oh, well, this was obviously a bioweapon that was unleashed on us. And or the conspiracies was, are strong yeah. with this one, particularly when the unleashing of the virus from the nation of China was associated with some, you know, very cliched elements like a secret lab, communist party cover up, you know, some yeah. of that has a grain of truth. Right. And then recently a headline was that some official with the Chinese army said it was actually an American bioweapon that they brought over here to study and then they they released it and then now Russia and Iran are also promoting their own bioterror theory so it's just like what is even happening it's almost pointless to debate whether it is or not a bioweapon the more interesting thing to me is the information war that's going on well it's it's fascinating that people want to pin the blame on someone whether it's the presidential administration past or present uh, or whether so-and-so had organized the government to be ready for these responses, or whether such-and-such a nation is actually secretly unleashing these things as a bioweapon. At best, I see all of those theories as an attempt to imagine that we have some sort of control over this. Well, if I can identify where this came from, you know, sitting in my basement, you know, reading the comments on the internet, then I will feel like I have control over it. And even some of the, the runs on toilet paper and all of that, or, or joking about those things, deep down we want to have that sense of control. I don't understand what's going on. I don't feel in control. This is not normal. This is interrupting my routine. I have to cancel my trip. My schools are getting canceled, all of that. But if I can blame someone or understand something, then I, I will have that illusion that I'm, I'm actually managing something. Uh, and particularly if you're trying to go onto social media and police the language about whether we're calling it coronavirus or the Wuhan plague or whether or not blaming the Chinese for it is actually racist. That too seems to me an attempt to grab for that illusion of control. And yet we don't have that. It's a, it's a promise that can't be fulfilled. Like it's a fallen world. Christians understand this more than anyone. Genesis three, God says it when Adam and Eve sinned, they not only fell spiritually and became spiritually dead, separated from God, but the whole universe now groans, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, groans as if in the pains of childbirth. Now, Paul promises that the universe is awaiting its redemption, just as Christ's people are awaiting our resurrection, our fully completed resurrection. But until that day, we have those thorns and thistles that God mentioned as part of the curse in Genesis 3, we have disease. Surely viruses existed, would have existed in some form in a perfect world, but now they're weaponized just by the fact that there's a curse in effect. Uh, Jesus has died and resurrected to begin that recovery, starting with the, the inside of the human who becomes 
redeemed, who, who receives Jesus and is converted into becoming more like him through his sacrifice and resurrection. But until then, we are going to struggle. There will be natural disasters. There will be plagues, wars and rumors of wars, stuff that people do, but also stuff that nature does. We can't control it. We just, we just can't, although we should try to. And I'm glad that people are working on vaccines and the measures of trying to cancel large events and all of that. Will they work? Don't know. As the other meme says, uh, if it works, we probably won't know it and we'll feel a little silly afterwards for <laughs> overreacting. But maybe through the overreaction, we actually make some progress. So here's what I've, I've been thinking about with all this. You know, I asked this question, where's the hope in this story? And what I keep coming back to with coronavirus is what am I putting my hope in? Like you said, am I putting my hope in closing, you know, canceling everything? Am I putting my hope in them finding a vaccine really quickly? Because I, I find myself, I keep doing this. I'm like, oh yeah, there's this lab in Israel now, or there's this lab at University of California. They sequence the genome. They're getting close to a vaccine. The like, Mayo Clinic's going to do it. Yeah. Extra Mayo. Right. Yes. And then, um, but honestly, I had a wake-up call yesterday when uh, the president had a press conference and said, oh, we're securing funding to have 5 million tests. And, and then he... He very quickly says, not to get too political, but he very quickly says, well, I don't expect there to be 5 million people sick, but I, I just had to think, well, wait a minute, why do you need that many tests? And so, you know, this is going to get a lot worse than we thought. And as a Christian, my hope has to be in something bigger than just, oh, this will be over quickly and life will get back to normal. What I really like about the line between is it doesn't, okay, this might be a mild spoiler listener. So if you don't want any spoilers of any kind, if you're like my, uh, my oldest daughter who hates any kind of spoilers, just go ahead and hit, you have my permission, hit the 30 second skip. Button. You can quarantine yourself yeah. <laughs> from spoilers. One, one could even say. Yes. Okay. So here we go. In the line between, there isn't a pretty bow put on a cure by page 100 or something. This drags out much longer than I thought it would. And I realized I've been conditioned by movies like the Will Smith movie, I Am Legend, where there is a cure that they find by the end of the two hours, you know, that you're in this story world. And so many other movies and books and shows are like that. We're like, oh, it's, it's just about finding the cure. And um, do we, we talk about the Dustin Hoffman movie, Outbreak? No, not yet. No. Okay. Have, have you not, seen that? I have not seen that one. Okay, that, that's the I also one. I haven't seen Contagion, and that's another okay. title that's been uh, been brought about a lot. Okay, so this is actually a perfect segue. In Outbreak, it's all about finding this diseased monkey with Ebola. And what, what, the, the monkey is like the MacGuffin. So once they find the monkey, they find the cure. And it's kind of this weird, like, how did they find this one monkey? I, I don't know. But in Pandemic, by contrast, pretty much everyone just dies. <laughs> And so, okay, mild spoiler, sorry, but those were like entirely different stories about, about outbreaks where one is about, oh, it's just about finding the cure and everything's fine. The other one is like, no, everything's going to kind of go bad and then get worse. With the line between, it's, it's sort of in the middle there. There is hope, but it's not necessarily in like an instant cure that makes everything go back to normal. So when you read this book, though, what did you feel like the hope or the message was? The hope is in holding on to your humanity and your faith, despite what's going on. And that does make it, you know, almost, I would not say it's a dark story because it's not a, a, a nihilistic story where there's no more virtue, humanity is forever compromised, no one's good in this world. The story itself allows that hope to shine through, you know, not just through practical measures, you know, such as one person building a 
a giant uh, shelter, you know, that's self-sustaining and has a lot of technology and generators and such, you know, to to live out the outbreak. Just the very idea of people trying to help each other and showing compassion to one another, and the the probably not so subtle theme of the fact that even if the world is gripped in a pandemic, yes, you might need to seclude yourself, quarantine yourself for a while, but it is a temporary measure. You do not seal yourself inside a literal or cultural bubble to avoid that contact with the outside world. Any measures like that to protect yourself are temporary and they are for the ultimate end of getting back to human existence. I'm actually a little bit frustrated and I'm not, I would not call myself an extrovert, but some of the memes I've seen uh, frustrate me just a little bit when I, I see, you know, hey, introverts, this is your time. We get to stay inside and play video games yeah, all day. There's and, no sports. <laughs> right. And, and I, I think, okay, you know, I'm not the biggest sports fan in the world, which is to say no, not at all. However, that, that is not the way that God has made us to operate. You know, we, we, the times that we have to ourselves, even if we're introverts, to recharge, you know, that is for the purpose of going back out and being community with other image bearers of God in our churches, in our schools, at the grocery, all of that. And any of those safety measures are, they, they should be temporary. We should see them as, okay, I've got to do this to be safe, to be a good steward, to be wise in my choices. And because, you know, at least all the genuinely smart people in the world, it seems, are, are saying, you know, flatten the curve. We, we don't want to peak so high mm-hmm. that the health system is overwhelmed. We have to Try to minimize those large contact situations, cancel some events, cancel church services, all of that. I understand that. It, it would be foolish to think that we have to keep doing that. You know, the, the hope right. is that we'll be able to get through this and other crises and go back to living at least as close as we can to living like humans the way that God made us to live in, in fellowship with each other. Those are some really great thoughts. I, I love that the book, um, the line between really instilled a lot of that in you because again i've seen a lot more of these kind of doomsday movies maybe and maybe that's not so great for my soul because especially not now yeah well i mean because you know imagination is a good thing like that's kind of our big thesis of this show and stories help us process what we're feeling and what we're going through but i I realize what the danger is of a lot of these stories is that they dwell they, they don't only imagine but they dwell on a possible world where coronavirus or Ebola just take over and God is not on his throne or he's just absent. That is exactly my, one of my main spiritual struggles. Like back in college, one of my roommates, John, who I I had three of them. So John, whichever John you are, you'll have to figure this out for yourself. But John said to me when I was going through a really tough time about something, he said, you're imagining a world where God doesn't exist. Mm. And I've always thought about that, that that is, that is my primary struggle because I'm very future and oriented. I'm always thinking about what's tomorrow, next week, next month. And all too often, I'm just like, oh, okay, and that's going to happen. And then God won't be there to solve that. So I really liked how the line between, it's kind of like the book of Esther, like you don't directly see God, but you can indirectly see right. God. Well, he work. is mentioned in themes of faith, sure. you know, and like the cult is contrasted with, you know, true religion, which is out there, you know, somewhere. Uh, and, and it's, it's, it's not overt, but those themes are there right, in the right. story. Mm-hmm. For our listener, th- these are some call to action, like what can we do as Christians? 
you know, obviously read this book. We love this book and talk about, you know, talk to us about some books that you're reading or movies you've watched. We would love to hear your thoughts about what message you take away from a lot of these stories because stories really do affect us and how we feel. Honestly, it's like all the Costco toilet paper madness. I'm like, or the jokes. I'm like, about this, them. this is like a direct fulfillment of, of movie prophecy, right? I, I feel like we've watched so many movies we're like, oh, we know what to do. We got to get guns, toilet paper in our bunker. And people are being informed by their imaginations yeah, rightly right. and wrongly. Yeah. So here are a couple of things, Stephen, I'd, I'd written down. I think the very first thing we need to do is worship because we follow a savior who touched the sick and he never got sick. And then secondly, let's look for ways that we can serve and help our neighbors. I was really put in my place where in our neighborhood Facebook group, everyone's talking about, you know, grocery stores and and whatnot. And then someone, one of our neighbors posted, Hey, are you someone that is over the age of 70 or immunocompromised and you're just too afraid to go out? If so, send me your grocery list and I'll go get your groceries oh, for that's you. that's perfect. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what the church needs to be doing right now. So serve your neighbors, pray for revival. And this is something that one of my pastors was talking about, that don't just pray for a cure, pray for a revival because people are facing Amen. Them, their mortality in ways that they never thought they would have to. And then finally, I would encourage you, listener, to reach out and share the gospel, share the hope that's within you overtly. Yes. And there is a really good tool that we're going to link to in the show notes. It's called power over fear. And very briefly, there's kind of three major cultural operating systems. There's guilt, innocence, which is the West. There's honor, shame, which is the East and the Middle East. And then there's a fear power, which Mm. is a lot of sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia and uh, South America. And American politics. Yeah. And right, and you know we're all a combination of all three because in the garden Adam and Eve experienced fear, shame, and guilt. But this tool, in the language of fear and power, shares the gospel so clearly, and it's put out by Crew. So look for the link. It's a great little presentation that you can you can send to on an email or a text message. So I also had a few other action items. First, that that. Um missional strategy sounds perfect i'm really looking forward to looking into that myself uh, one thing that i've struggled with this uh with with the, all the all the bad news going on is uh is also swerving between the two extremes of either taking it too seriously in which case i'm losing sleep like i lost some sleep last night yeah. or deciding to be flippant mm. the, even some of the meme sharing and all of that uh, can be you know sort of a die all die merrily type uh type response like well there's there's a uh, there's a place for even gallows humor or dark humor, I would say, but we also don't want to be so flippant that we're thinking thoughts like I was thinking yesterday where like, you know, I just don't want to talk about this anymore. It's just, it's, it's so you're exhausted. Yeah. Well that too, but also like, Oh, this is so cliche. Like I'm going to the barber shop. I hope they're not talking about coronavirus. It's so cliche. And I realized, wait a minute, this is important. This is so important. And I think even as Christians, you know, the, the equivalent to coronavirus that is, of course, a far more serious threat is, is the plague of sin. And even when I say yeah. that, I think, oh, I'm, 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 that's a Jesus joke. You know, that's, <laughs> that's forcing a Jesus or spiritual language into a conversation where it really doesn't organically arise, but it does. As you said, we face our mortality, and this is a great reminder. Like, I'm not above using this to start conversations about that far more serious threat and the absolutely 100% essential solution, the gospel. The other thing, the other application I have, especially for Christians who read fantasy, is 
in your choices, the stories that you're looking for or the nonfiction that you're looking for, always be a prepper for suffering. Mm. And maybe a literal prepper for literal events like this or, or storms or hurricanes, things like that. But um, Randy Alcorn, actually, who is a nonfiction and fiction author, he's written several books that I would recommend. One of them is called If God is Good, and it is about the Christian response to suffering. And before he even gets into his, uh, his in-depth explorations of that topic from a biblical worldview, he says that, uh, paraphrasing, he says, the time to prepare for the suffering that you will experience now and in the future is, is now. Like the time where you're doing very well, like that's the time to start getting that into your head and getting that into your heart, that suffering is coming. There is no spiritual formula to head it off. The only hope is that after Christ returns and or we die and Jesus remakes the world uh, before which we're, we're in heaven, uh, that's the time when we're set free from suffering. It's not going to happen until then. Until then, we have got to train for it. And so we need to be reading nonfiction. We need to be listening to good sermons, dwelling on scripture primarily. That's a warning about suffering and how we need to cling to God in the midst of that. But I'd say also we need to be reading good stories that aren't shying away from these dark topics that aren't minimizing the suffering. I mean, sure, you can look at a Thomas Kincaid painting for a while, you know, kind of a frequent target there, the, this, you know, standing in for saccharine art that's set in a world without the fall. Uh, I'm not saying don't do that. You know, that, those are very human measures as well. But we also need those, those stories so that our imaginations are subconsciously even prepared to expect these kind of crises. Amen. Great message, Stephen. All right, well, I'm going to pop open the mailbag, and we have, so this is kind of a two-parter. There was a Facebook post by someone named Kalina, I hope I'm saying that right, and she said, quote, I'm really enjoying Speculative Faith's Fantastical Truth podcast and would recommend the second episode for sure. Many salient points about the topic. What are your thoughts? End quote. And by the way, she's referencing our episode where we asked, what do we even mean when we say it's a Christian story? Oh, that was episode two. Yes. Yes. And uh, here's the really fun part, Stephen. There was a reply to Kaylina from someone named Jennifer. So we don't even have to reply. Yeah. It's covered. There we go. Here, and here it is. Thank and you, Jennifer. She says, quote, I thought it was very interesting. I'd never considered a Christian book to be a Christian book because the author is a Christian. For me, it was always about content. Clearly, there's a lot of confusion and differing views that may never be spoken. So thank you, Kaylina and Jennifer. Thank you for those kind comments. And then, Stephen, we have an origin story, so a fantastical reader origin story from our previous question, how did you first discover fantastical fiction? And this is from Josh S. He says, quote, I went to a private Christian school that didn't endorse much fantasy. I remember reading Encyclopedia Brown and Boxcar Children, but one day I found a book in the school library titled The Seventh Princess. Don't judge based on the horrendous cover it is now, but the old cover is what drew me in. It was a little girl standing next to a dwarf, and they were being attacked by a giant eagle. It's a portal fantasy, and I remember loving the plot twists and magical world, end quote. So thank you, Josh, for seeing that in. And to our listener, please tell us your fantastical origin reader story, you can send that to podcast at lorehaven.com. And I would say to Josh S. and anyone 
who maybe feels a little silly about the exact uh, object or enchanted device that led them to embrace this world of fantasy, unless you actually sinned, don't be ashamed of that. There can be any kind of ridiculous object uh, or ridiculous story uh, that, uh, that is used to jump into that amazing world. So this month at Lorehaven, uh, we are releasing our next issue of the magazine. That is the spring 2020 issue. The cover story is Our Favorite Fantasy, in which we again set loose our volunteer review team, amazing, well-read fantasy fans all. Uh, we usually have books for them to review that are made by Christians and are in fantastical genres that are submitted to Lorehaven. But this time we said, hey, go choose your own. It just needs to be a Christian author, as far as we know, and some kind of fantasy novel that is published. They went and they found their favorites. Uh, one of those favorites uh, is actually the one that we really are, Zach, really are covering in our next podcast, uh, the classic Frankie Peretti novel, This Present Darkness. Uh, we're going to be joined by uh, Austin Gunderson, who's the review chief at Lorehaven. He's going to stop by and uh, kind of reminisce with us uh, about that book. And uh, Zach, we're going to try very hard not to give any spoilers because you have not yet read it. So that would have been this episode, but it, we felt it very important just to take a break, step back, calm down, talk about uh, talk about epidemics, our uh, our biblical response to them, and our imaginative response. We'd love to get your thoughts to that. But for Lorehaven, we're still on track to release that issue this month as we're recording March 2020. You can subscribe by going to lorehaven.com. The subscription is free. Check it out. And also send us your thoughts about any of the pandemic fictions that you enjoy, if you can say enjoy, uh, in the ways that maybe that helps you to, to prepare for things like this. Thank you so much for joining us. We're really looking forward to that uh, next, next episode. In the meantime, stay healthy. Try not to hoard too much. Or if you did hoard, share with your neighbors. Maybe you don't need to wear a mask, but find good ways to use the time if you end up having to go into some kind of temporary seclusion. Read that next issue, go back, check out some of our previous episodes, and of course, continue to join us on this eternal mission to seek and find fantastical truth. <laughs>